Before we get started, just a quick reminder that tickets are on sale now for our live podcast event happening during National Science Week. We'll have a panel of scientists on stage talking irreverently about what a life in science is actually like. It's on the 16th of August at Camelot Lounge in Sydney. Check out the events tab on InSituScience.com or follow us on Facebook to get events updates. Thanks so much for listening. I hope to see you there and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and hear behind-the-scenes stories of the discoveries they make. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this week we meet paleontologist, dinosaur hunter, and, very importantly, hadrosaur expert, Dr. Phil Bell. Phil, thanks for joining me. G'day. Thanks for having me. <laughs> no worries. I was excited to hear that you're a, a hadrosaur expert here in Australia. Really? They're, for some reason, they're my favorite group of dinosaurs. Oh, right. <laughs> Not too many people get excited about hadrosaurs, which I think is why I fell in love with them. Really? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's kind of an old adage in paleontology is um, you are what you study. Mm-hmm. And uh, the people who work on big toothy things tend to be kind of big and aggressive people. <laughs> <laughs> and the, uh, Fair enough. And the, and the people who work on you know, the more diminutive or easily forgotten dinosaurs are... Um, yeah, they tend to be a nice, nice group. <laughs> That's probably true for zoology as well. I'm, I'm an ant person. I don't mean to offend all the therapod <laughs> workers out there, but you know who you are. So your your specialty in, in hadrosaurs came about because a project fell in your lap, or yeah, is this... basically, I was in uh, I was in Canada um, in 2003 on my first dinosaur dig, mm-hmm. and uh, hadrosaurs are literally a dime a dozen over there. So I was working right. at a place called Dinosaur Provincial Park, which is, if you're interested in dinosaurs, it's probably the best place in the world to go. Okay. Um, they have a saying there, if, um, if you throw your hat and it doesn't land within five feet of a bone, <laughs> then you're not in Dinosaur Provincial Park. It, it, you're literally walking on bones. Mm. Um, so there are so many hadrosaur skeletons there that... Um, you can't collect them all. You simply mm-hmm. don't have the resources and time to do so. Yeah. You um, you choose the best ones mm-hmm. and and you take them. Um, so th- there was lots of opportunities. That's yep. what I'm saying to to study them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I ended up working on a, an animal called Saurolophus, and people may be more familiar with its cousin Parasaurolophus, which yep. has a big kind of trumpet-like. Um, and you've just corrected my pronunciation. <laughs> of it. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, it has a big crest on, on mm-hmm. the back of its head, um, which is hollow in Parasaurolophus, but it's solid in oh, Saurolophus. Right. And there's, um, there's a species that lives in Canada and another species in Mongolia, so mm-hmm. I got to have lots of fun um, travelling between those two countries and, and looking at hadrosaurs. All right, so I remember a few years ago going to the, the Natural History Museum in New York, yeah. and they had a little exhibit on Parasaurolophus and its hollow crest, whatever you, what do you call it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they uh, were suggesting it could have been involved in their call or vocalizations. Yeah, so those hollow tubes mm. within that uh, within that crest were attached to the um, the nasal passages, mm-hmm. and in turn, those kind of fed into the part of the brain that uh, received sound. Oh, yeah. Um, so there's a there seems to be a direct link there, mm-hmm. and so um, yeah, most scientists agree now that these things were vocalizing using their crest as a, a resonator, yeah. kind of like a body of a guitar, yeah, yeah. Uh, to amplify the sounds and communicate 
with mates and all its um, other members of the herd. Yeah, I mean, I remember this exhibit had a model of their head uh, that you could, they had a little handle you would pump air into and it had a reed in it or something so you could hear what the, this resonation, resonation, is that a word? Yeah, <laughs> what, what, yeah. <laughs> what it, it sounds like. And it was that sort of eerie moment where you had a, a, a tangible link yeah, between what you're experiencing now and something that existed millions of years ago. This could be what the dinosaur sounded like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, talking of the this group being very sort of overlooked and unknown, I mean, why do you think it is certain groups stick with people? Everybody knows your T-Rexes and your Stegosaurus and Triceratops. Is, is it just simply historical what is it? Um, well, it's partly that things with big teeth um, mm. capture people's imaginations yeah. because they're they're our real world monsters, mm. and um, you know, kids get excited about that kind of thing. And, and something with big big horns like Triceratops um, has its own charisma, mm. whereas things like hadrosaurs, which are kind of the cows of the Cretaceous, <laughs> um, yeah, you drive past them and um, and you want to see something more interesting. <laughs> um, but the, the real benefit of them really is because they're so common, we have a much better data set, you know, statistically better mm. data set, um, to understand the biology of these creatures. Where if you're mm. dealing with uh, some of these big carnivorous dinosaurs where you have a sample size of one or two, mm. um, then there's limited things you can actually say about that animal. Yeah. Um, so in, in a lot of ways... Um, these more common groups and more overlooked groups mm. uh, are, are actually better for, for scientific research. So, yeah, I guess we're quite lucky. Is, is it frustrating the focus that's put on the big charismatic ones? You know, get so many people asking about your, your motobar sources and things? <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, I, I love all dinosaurs, equally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, dinosaurs are good press. And I, mm. I'm fortunate that I do work on lots of different types of dinosaurs. I'm, I guess I consider myself more of a generalist these days, uh, although I started my career on, mm. on hadrosaurs. Being in Australia, um, you can't be so picky, and mm-hmm. so you end up being a, a bit more of a generalist. Mm. And so now I've, I've worked on um, everything from T-Rex to pterosaurs, the flying reptiles, mm. um, and a whole host of, of different dinosaurs as well. And, and I really like that, because you don't end up being pigeonholed, you don't yeah. get bored. <laughs> um, there's always something new to learn. Yeah. Uh, and it definitely keeps me on my toes because uh, you can become a specialist relatively easily on, on you know, one thing, but mm. to try and fill your head with knowledge related to lots more things uh, becomes significantly more challenging. Yeah. Is it a thing in paleontology where... Uh, is, is it difficult to stay in the big animal sort of game? If, <laughs> it's a strange question, but you know, my sort of zoology anecdote would be everybody sort of gets into it thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to go swimming with dolphins mm. and big cats and elephants. But funding isn't easy to get right. and opportunities aren't there, and so often you apply your skills to other zoological questions that aren't as you're charismatic yeah, from a yeah. public perception. Is that similar with paleontology? Um, I guess I, I take what falls in my lap. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to be working in 
uh, a number of places from, from Lightning Ridge here in Australia to Mongolia to Canada still today. Mm. Um, so I'm exposed to lots of different types of dinosaurs um, and not necessarily closely related things that mm. you know, I can apply my knowledge from one place to another. Yeah, um, yeah I'm, I'm always looking at quite disparate um, projects and, yeah. and different faunas. Um, so, yeah, I, I've got to be quite flexible, I guess. Yeah. I mean, in a way, dinosaurs are sort of the face of a much larger field. Where yeah, are looking at right. plants and mollusks and all sorts of stuff. Exactly, yeah. People should always be aware that paleontology does not equal dinosaurs. Yeah. It's just a, a small part of the ancient ecosystem that... Um, that we're interested in. Mm. My focus just happens to be dinosaurs, but if you're a paleontologist, you can be studying anything from microscopic marine organisms <laughs> through to extinct mammals. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I know that a lot of other paleontologists who get a bit miffed about the dinosaur researchers getting all the press. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> no, I think we all deal with that every time something about whales comes out all us. Insect people yeah. go, yeah, we do interesting stuff too. Yeah. <laughs> but it must be, is it stressful waiting for dinosaurs to turn up? <laughs> you know, can you actually go out in search of things? Or that's, that's the part that I love the most is going out in the field mm-hmm. and, and hunting for things. Yeah. And we go back to places that we know we're going to find things. Yeah. There's, there's always an element of risk in any expedition. Um, but, you know, traditionally we, we go to places, um, like I said, in Canada, Mongolia, mm. um, where there have been historical expeditions, our own expeditions included, mm. um, that have turned up wonderful things. And so, you know, um, you're, you're at less risk uh, of yeah, missing yeah. something, um, good. You always find something of interest. Mm. It's just how interesting that thing may be. Is it a new species or is it a duplicate of something that's already known, um, which has its own merits as mm. well? I mean, how much of your work is actually finding new stuff as opposed to analysing existing specimens and finds? These days, my time in the field is more limited because I've got uh, teaching obligations mm. and, and students and uh, and then the research side of things as well, yeah. which is very time-consuming. So, uh, yeah, in in general, I'd maybe only spend a month or two at the most in mm-hmm. the field any one any given year. Um, in the past, it used to be three or four months, mm. uh, which was lovely, and that would be gallivanting off from Argentina and all around the world. <laughs> and, and <laughs> um, yeah, so. I'd, my heyday has has passed oh, no. now. And <laughs> <laughs> Not this early, surely. <laughs> but there are there are opportunities for people to get involved in these expeditions as volunteers, right? You said you're doing stuff in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so for the last four years, um, we've been working with the Australian Opal Centre and Australian Geographic mm-hmm. in Lightning Ridge. Yeah, uh, and a lot of people don't realise that Lightning Ridge is one of the most important. Um, areas for producing dinosaur fossils in Australia mm-hmm. um, that we know of at this time. And we've been taking uh, groups of volunteers out there uh, for two weeks each year. Mm-hmm. And volunteers pay to come along and that money 
supports um, the research that goes on out there and, and, and also keeps them fed mm-hmm. while they're there. <laughs> um, and we explore the, the area around Lightning Ridge that is um, principally an opal mining mm. region, but at the same time they're turning up dinosaurs and other yeah. prehistoric beasts yeah. um, as a result of the mining process. Um, but they're often missed as well. These fossils get discarded. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're often going through the, the miners' waste heaps. Um, yeah, it's not <laughs> a particularly glamorous a job, but paleontology isn't actually glamorous. Forget everything you learnt from Jurassic Park. Um, it's hot, it's dusty. Yeah, um, yeah you get sunburned and, you know, <laughs> there, there are hazards involved. Um, but it's a lot of fun, to, yeah. you know, being out back and, um, yeah, sniffing around for dinosaur bones is... Is something I am extremely passionate about, and that's why I do this. And I mean, so, you get that classic image of sitting gently, brushing away at a giant skull yeah. embedded in the ground. It's not all just that. Yes, don't don't, um, don't expect to do that on <laughs> <laughs> virtually any <laughs> dinosaur dig. Yeah. I, I have done it, and it's yeah. extremely pleasurable. Okay. It's, it's the exception rather than the rule. Yeah, jackhammers and maddox and and hard work of far more normal. Yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, how, I mean, finding a nicely preserved piece of anything that you can gently brush sand off of is one in a zillion. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. And, and dinosaurs are, are found um, not because they're leaping out of rocks yeah. at you. It, it takes a, a long time of walking and looking at the mm-hmm. ground. And usually what you find first is a, a broken piece of bone that mm-hmm. might have tumbled down a, a slope and uh, anything that's at the bottom of a slope must from, come from right, higher yeah. up. Yep. So you, you end up trace, chasing the, the fragments um, mm-hmm. to where they came from yep. and then you start your excavation. So it's not just kind of a willy-nilly, oh, this looks like a good spot to start digging and go mm-hmm. for it. You're looking for things on the surface that give you a clue as to where something may be. And it may just turn out to be a single bone mm. uh, and not a skeleton at all, and that's that's actually the um, the normal way. That not finding a yeah, full you, skeleton. Full skeletons are particularly rare, mm. um, and something that you see in a museum are the, they're the cream of the crop of, of yep. discoveries. Um, so, normally, what you find, like I said, is a single bone or maybe a scattering of bones mm. if you're doing well. I mean, I've always wondered how. These museum exhibits extrapolate from bones or bone fragments what entire animals look like. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's actually one of the most common questions I get as a paleontologist. Mm-hmm. How do you make a full dinosaur reconstruction based off you know, one or two or bones? <laughs> yeah. um, and it's actually an easy question to answer because it's based on other specimens, other skeletons that are complete and mm-hmm. that we're more familiar with. So if I was to hold up a, um, let's say, a, a crocodile skull mm-hmm. to a, a biologist, um, it's just a skull, but because that biologist has seen a crocodile before, yeah. they could tell me that the animal may have been about five metres long, it would have had armour down its back, mm-hmm. it's probably aquatic, um, and give me lots of other details, that we don't know just from that single skull, but it's mm. based on their prior knowledge. And that's exactly what we do with paleontology. You have to familiarise with thing, familiarise yourself with things that have been found in the past and then apply that to new discoveries to mm-hmm. inform uh, 
what that animal may have been. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You, if you know it's this type of dinosaur, but it's bigger than things you've found in the past, yeah. you, would, you would scale it up. Yeah, so sense, yeah. often what you see in a, a museum is a, a composite mount, mm-hmm. um, meaning you've got the bones of the animal it may say it is, um, let's say it's an Allosaurus, mm-hmm. and there's a handful of bones of the original, and then you might um, fill in the missing pieces with bones from um, either another specimen or, if that species is poorly known, then a similar species okay. um, to kind of map it in. So um, we're getting so average just dinosaurs at... in museums, or generalised sort of looks at dinosaurs. Uh, sometimes, yeah. yeah. I mean, things like... T-Rex and Triceratops, we have complete skeletons of. Mm-hmm. We know exactly what they look like. Yep. But some of the newer species, for example, that are coming out these days may only be known from a handful of bones. Mm. Um, but we can make pretty good inferences of what they looked like based on their relatives, which are, you know, for all intents and purposes, mm. very similar-looking animals. Yeah. I mean, probably what's really important now in getting an idea of what they actually looked like is not just the bones, you're also looking at skin... Yeah, no. that's um, that's something I've become really interested in mm-hmm. um, throughout my career. Is not just the identity of animals. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of a historical uh, view of paleontology. You know, we dig up bones and we find a new dinosaur. We name it and put it in a museum. Nowadays, people treat paleontology more like ecology um, mm-hmm. or behavioural ecology. Um, we're interested in how these animals lived and breathed, how they mated, how they evolved, how mm. they um, migrated. Uh, all of these things can now be answered. So it's it's more of a living science than a you know, something that's just looking at dead bones. Yeah. Um, and that's really cool because these things haven't walked around for at least 65 million years, but we're starting to breathe life into these bones now through the use of new technologies, um, computer modelling, CT scans, synchrotrons, mm. um, all of these wonderful technologies we kind of pinch from um, other disciplines mm. we can apply to paleontology now. So we're using principles from engineering, um, aeronautics, like all kinds of wonderful things to inform paleontology and, and how these ancient beasts once lived. I was at a behavioural ecology conference a few years ago and there was one talk on dinosaurs that everybody flocked to because nobody talks about dinosaurs at a behavioural ecology conference. It's all about, well, well, I guess they do. It's all about birds. But, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I wish I could remember the name of the person that did it, but they did a whole talk on dinosaur colours mm. and how in certain fossils they can actually get uh, ideas of the shape of pigment molecules yeah. they're in the skin yeah. and by comparing them to existing pigment molecules they're they're inferring what colors they were that's right and doing yeah. reconstructions across entire bodies and it was another one of those amazing moments where we could you know dinosaurs weren't brown and green lizards <laughs> anymore there were these you know they became birds they had big colorful crests on their heads and they had stripes and yeah we were all told growing up that we will never know what color a a dinosaur is, or any mm. ext- extinct organism for that matter, because colours don't preserve. Yeah. And while it's true that colours themselves don't preserve, uh, the molecules that are responsible for creating colours mm. can do in, in certain circumstances. Mm. And the little molecules we're referring to 
uh, called melanosomes. Mm -hmm. And depending on the shape and size and uh, arrangement of these melanosomes determines what the uh, resultant colour will be Mm. in in some instances. Um, So particular colours, dark, you know, black, iridescent, um, and ruddy red hues, as well as whites, can all be determined based Uh on these melanosomes. Mm -hmm. That's pretty far out when you think about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, we can start creating that that bird guide book to dinosaurs <laughs> now. You know, look what colour feathers this one had. Yeah, um, yeah I, I think that's really f- cool stuff. I think it, it blew everyone's minds because as soon as they put up the photograph of the colour patterns, you could just see all the behavioural ecologists in the room start interpreting them and thinking, <laughs> right, that red crest on the head is probably a signal to females exactly, or yeah. these stripes or perhaps um, disruptive camouflage or something. Yeah, some of the camouflage things that come out of that gives you a whole new insight into how these animals were interacting with their environment. Mm. And that's information you would never get in any other way. Mm. Um, so it really are opening up in you know, kind of a new field of, of dinosaur research, mm-hmm. um, just how these animals looked and interacted with their environment based on colour and patterns, mm. uh, it's all really cool. We're starting to look at that stuff with uh, with skin as well. So most of that colour research has been done on um, animals with fossil feathers, okay. feathers that are preserved on the body. Um, but most dinosaurs actually had scaly skin, like we remember from our okay. childhood dinosaur books. I was going to ask about that because that's all we've been hearing about the past couple of years is yeah, yeah. dinosaurs have feathers. Yeah, it's, it's very excited, or very easy to get excited about the whole <laughs> feathered dinosaur thing. Yeah. Um, but have to remember that actually most dinosaurs, you know, your big sauropod dinosaurs, long-necked things like mm-hmm. Diplodocus and Brachiosaurus, um, things like Triceratops and Stegosaurus, Hadrosaurs, mm. they all had scaly skin. Yeah. Um, and at this point... We haven't quite got to the level of detail that people who are looking at fossil feathers have, Mm -hmm. um, but there do seem to be some indications in there of things like melanosomes, things that may indicate colour. I don't think anything's been uh, published on that yet. It's pretty pretty fresh stuff. (laughs) Um, I can't say that I'm responsible for any of that research, (laughs) Um, but I do work on dinosaur skin, so I I do watch it closely, and it's... um, yeah, it's going to be another whole game changer when mm. that starts to get uh, recognised. It, it does. It is pretty amazing the amount of detail that can be in a fossil. You think if they're they're minerals, they would be bumpy, rocky type yeah. things. I think you you have impressions of these melanosomes. Well, and that's the other thing. the The discovery of you know, these various soft tissues has changed our understanding of how fossils form. Mm. Um, you know, whereas in the past, it was soft tissues decay and you're left with the mineralized hard parts, things like bones and scales and, and teeth. Mm-hmm. And maybe in rare instances, you get some squashed remains of, of soft tissue, an outline of the animal, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and even you know, 20, 30 years ago, people were looking at dinosaur skin, uh, which had been known for 100 years or so to that, at that point, um, and still we're calling it impressions, impressions like they were a footprint. Mm. We now understand that these are actually mineralized remains mm-hmm. of the skin itself. There yeah. is integrity to these fossils um, 
they're not just a, a stamp in the mud. It's, mm. it's actual fossilised skin. Mm. Um, so now we're changing our uh, views and, and looking at these things a bit uh, more differently. Mm. Um, and that who knows what we'll, we'll find. I've given up saying, oh, we'll never know about this, we'll never know about that, <laughs> because you know, the, the sky has just been the limit in the last 15 years or so. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the, the technology that's being thrown at it and, and that we can do things like scan bones with CT scanners and recreate them with 3D printers. Yeah, I, I'm really um, lucky to be working with... Um, a group here at UNE, the, the Fear Lab, led by Steve Rowe, mm-hmm. um, who is cutting ed- edge um, in that field, working with um, with CT scans of, of bones and fossils mm-hmm. and, and computer ma- manipulation. Um, I was also lucky enough to go to uh, the Synchrotron in um, uh, in Stanford, in uh, San Francisco, the other month. Um, synchrotrons are pretty space-age kind of technology. Um, you can think of them as X-ray machines that are about the size of a football field, and they produce a, um, a light that's several hundred times brighter, um, several, sorry, several hundred thousand times brighter <laughs> than a conventional X-ray. So mm. you can imagine that the level of detail that you get out of these things is... Um, Infinitely more improved than, mm. than a you know, medical CT scanner. Yeah. So we were there scanning fossils. Um, I was just one of a number of, of researchers from around the world that had come to this facility um, to use their best technology. Mm. Um, so there were people scanning incredible 150-million-year-old um, fossil octopuses, um, me with dinosaurs. There was another guy with dinosaur skin um, and then some other fossil insects, all kinds of cool mm. stuff. And this is really cutting-edge stuff. We don't really know what we're going to find when we put these things through these scanners. Mm. Um, but in the past, people have uh, been able to detect like actual biomolecules, you know, wow. degraded remains of uh, amino acids, and things like that, that are still intact wow. in these fossils, which we all assumed <laughs> that it was just rock. Um, you know, these things don't fossilise. It's yeah. it's a rock. It's hundreds of millions of years old. And it's something you wouldn't be able to see with human vision. Right. Being able to get these it. scans and manipulate this digital object. Yeah. Um, so the the goalposts have, have shifted dramatically mm. and you know, we're all running to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you have, if you're able to then 3D print dinosaur bones that you couldn't get out of whatever they're embedded in. Mm-hmm. I mean, will these replace or, or serve as museum specimens, in a sense? They certainly have um, a lot of validity in museum and classroom settings. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually as research objects as yeah. well. So I can take a print of a bone from Australia, or I can send that print, um, or even just the the file of that yeah, yeah. Um, to a researcher in the UK or in the States and they can print out their own copy mm. and put it in their own museum and their students have access to that. Mm. Um, so it's it's not a way of, um, I guess, making science flimsy or mm. um, uh, making artificial copies of things. These are enhancing our the way that we do research mm. now. Um, and you know, if you can hold 
you know, Joe Blow can hold a 3D print of a bone yeah. that comes from uh, Europe or something like that, then they're being exposed to something they may ne- never have the opportunity to be exposed mm. to. Um, and I think that's that's really important. I'm, I'm really passionate about getting science out to the general public yeah. because there's um, too much science is done behind closed doors <laughs> and um, and there's a lot of misconceptions in, mm. in the public about what science is and how we do it and who are these people deciding there are climate change? You know, there's, there's scientific principles. There's peer review. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> we work hard. We don't make this stuff up. Well, hopefully sitting here doing these podcasts will break down those barriers a bit. Yeah, that, <laughs> that's mean, right. I mean, the, the same principles about getting these 3D scans are talked about with, with entomology now, museums. You know, some of these type specimens are decades, maybe a century old, collected by Darwin yep. that you don't want to be shipping overseas for people to look at and they're very dry and brittle. But if you can get a scan of something and exactly. send it to someone they can just look at on a screen and zoom in on in I don't know, small structures for comparisons. Yeah. You, you, why not? You enhance research, not in your, just in your own institution or where that fossil lives, mm. but all around the world because everyone can have access to it. Yeah. Um, I mean, you mentioned, you, you name-dropped Jurassic Park a couple of times. <laughs> I mean, surely things like that have done a lot for people's awareness of paleontology and things. Is that a is that an eye-roll sort of thing for you, or, or is there a secret joy that... I, I know people do right roll their <laughs> eyes at Jurassic Park. And in the end, it's a movie. It's not a documentary yeah. by David Attenborough, so don't expect it to be. <laughs> um, it was a, a wonderful vehicle for popularising dinosaurs, and mm. I know um, a, a lot of students who have come through the university systems in, in recent years got turned on to dinosaurs because of Jurassic mm. Park. And I think there's a, um, a general knowledge in the, the public realm now that's much better because of Jurassic Park yeah. as well. Yes, there were some misleading things in there, but again, it's Hollywood. Yeah. Um, but people seeing that you know, dinosaurs lived and moved more like birds than yeah. they did sluggish turtles and reptiles, um, that they were brightly coloured, that some had feathers. This was the first time that a lot of people saw this. Mm. And you know, I, I applaud Jurassic Park for that. Mm. Um, it's a great movie. I'm not sure about the sequels. On the other <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, that's another discussion altogether. But I mean, it's a good point that you know, science fiction can be very important for the future of science. You, know, you look at something like The Martian, when we do get mm. people to Mars, people are going to probably point at that as a source of inspiration. Yeah, if it gets you thinking outside your regular sphere of thought, mm. then I think it's done its job. And, you know, if, if you haven't thought about Mars before, but the Martian got you thinking yeah. about it, then great. And if Jurassic <laughs> Park got you thinking about paleontology, terrific. I mean, to be fair, my uh, interest in hadrosaurs can probably be traced back to the land before time. <laughs> and, and Ducky was my favourite character. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Now, which land before time? <laughs> oh, I only remember the first one. Yeah, yeah. It was like 
eight or nine now or something is in there. And the rest of it. Yeah. But yeah, I think it was that same thing that hadrosaurs are the they're the underdog. Totally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I got um good friends who work on ankylosaurs, are the yeah. armored beasts. Mm-hmm. And um they're often poo pooed as well because they're pretty ugly looking brutes. Oh really? Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, <laughs> again, they're not a cool theropod with sharp claws and all the rest of it. So they kind of brushed it aside. Um, but we love our kind of forgotten and mistreated groups. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, also, I, I was devastated when I found out that uh, the Dimetrodons weren't dinosaurs. Ah, yeah. Because <laughs> that was my... Childhood dreams been crushed right there. Well, I had a Dino Rider toy, a little Dimetrodon. Did you have? Do you remember Dino oh, Riders? Of course I still you remember them, yeah. <laughs> And it, my my three-year-old little... son is now getting into them. <laughs> oh, great. Are they back? <laughs> no, but just my collection. Okay. Of, yeah, to live high in the closet. <laughs> <Kind of stay. laughs> and yeah, it was always up there as one of my favorite dinosaurs, and so many broke the news to me that it, it didn't count. Yeah. There's <laughs> <laughs> always interesting, those little packets of plastic toys that you, you get from Kmart or whatever, and marketers as dinosaurs, yeah. and half of them are synapsids. And, so I guess um, just to clarify for the listeners, what... What makes a dinosaur? Uh, to, simply speaking, it's it's all in the hips. <laughs> you've, you've been asked this before. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think a lot about this thing. Yeah. Um, no, dinosaurs are unusual, essentially, uh, because they can stand straight up. Their mm. legs are held directly underneath the body. Um, most, um, particularly reptiles hold their limbs out to the sides. So you think of a, a crocodile, for example, yep. dragging its belly along the, um, along the mud, and the arms are, and legs are splayed out. Mm-hmm. And that's the fairly usual gait for um, you know, everything from frogs and salamanders through to um, crocodiles, lizards. Yep. Um, and it's quite unusual for um, animals to have legs held straight underneath the body, like we do, mm-hmm. for example. Um, so within the, the reptilian world... Uh, dinosaurs are the the upright group, yep. and so they have a number of adaptations in the hips and in the feet that allow them to do that, and that's essentially what distinguishes them from very from much like groups. birds. Exactly, surprise, surprise. So birds actually got their upright stance from their dinosaur ancestors. Mm-hmm. So how should I be referring to these other groups? So these prehistoric. Reptiles, prehistoric animals, is there a name <laughs> for... Just leave, leave them as dinosaur wannabes. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, things like uh, Dimetrodon are more closely related to us than they are to dinosaurs. Yeah, that's right. They're, uh, they're on the um, beginnings of the, the mammalian lineage, mm. starting to become more mammal-like, mm. um, which blows a lot of people's minds, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could, that reassures me that my fascination with Dimetrodon wasn't... It's actually closer to home. Yeah. There was some empathy between me and that little plastic (laughs) toy. (laughs) All right. Well, I should probably let you go. Get back to it. Go sift through your dinosaur bones and (laughs) brush away at the dust. Thanks. Yeah. (laughs) Prepare for my next trip to Canada. We'll be out there digging dinosaurs in a a couple of weeks. Searching for more new stuff or looking at old stuff? Uh, Both, yes. We're returning to um, at least one site that's been particularly productive over the last few years, Mm -hmm. um, and we're getting some new dinosaurs out of that, uh, which is very exciting. Yeah. Um, But also exploring new areas around that locality as well. Um, Yeah, we've been doing that for the last 
yeah, six or seven years now, I think, mm-hmm. uh, with a group of paleontologists from Canada, Italy, um, uh, Chinese colleagues now, um, all coming together, mm-hmm. meeting in Canada, and uh, yeah, having an international dinosaur fest. It's pretty cool. <laughs> all right. Well, people want to uh, just keep up to date on your research. You've got a research website, right? Yeah, um, we're part of the Paleoscience Research Center mm-hmm. at, uh, at UNE, so we're paleoscience.com, uh, so people can check out what the other paleontologists and myself are, are up to at mm-hmm. UNE, um, and there's also the Northern Alberta Dinosaur Research Group, which uh, I'm a part of, which is where I'll be in the next mm-hmm. uh, couple of weeks in Canada, um, looking at our northern hemisphere um, dinosaurs. So. Well, and if people are interested in looking at volunteering opportunities, yeah, if people want to join us on a on a dig in Lightning Ridge, mm-hmm. then contact the Australian Opal Centre in Lightning Ridge um, and sign up. We've been running these digs very successfully for the last four years or so now, and um, yeah, it doesn't look like we'll be slowing up anytime soon. So yeah. I think there's still a few spots available in August this year. So we'd love to see you. Come along. If you've got spot for a, a in situ podcaster videographer, <laughs> let me know. I'll tag along. <laughs> well, there's usually media around it. <laughs> All right, cool. All right, well, thanks so much, Phil, for joining me. No worries. Thanks for having me. No worries. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to hear more, you can subscribe to In Situ Science on all good podcast apps. We're on Facebook and Twitter and in situ science.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.